Welcome to the Basin Church Podcast. And as a church, our mission is to bring hope and wholeness through Jesus Christ. And no matter where you are and as you listen today, we hope that you find hope in Jesus and even move one step closer to being made whole. So again, we are start, continuing our series in, called Halo. And uh, we'll, we'll get there in a second. But uh, let me just kind of tell you what's... what's um, there's kind of two kinds of people here in, uh, in the world. And the, the first one is this, is that um, some people trust people with no problem. I don't know if you're like that or not. Okay, so um, basically there's some people who can trust people, and there's some people who trust them with no problems, no issues, nothing, right? So uh, what people do is they just say, I'm going to trust you until you prove me wrong. And I don't know if you're that type of person, but someone who does that, they, they trust and they have all these kind of friends and all these, uh, so it works now? I'm keeping going, thank you. We'll come back to that later. So anyways, we'll just, um, so anyways, so again, again what, what ends up happening is I lost my thought there. But what happens is, is people, have, they, they trust and they begin to, um, you know, they end up, people hurt them. And so they trust so well that people hurt them and they don't, know why they hurt them. And there's others of us who are on the outside who are sitting saying, okay, well, we get why that happened. We understand why that happened and why the trust broke down. And it's not that because we have intuition and it's not because, you know, we're, we're, um, you know, have something great. The problem is that some of us don't trust well. And what I mean by that is that some of us come and we don't trust well that some of us actually have issues with people. And so what ends up happening is we always feel like somebody wants something from us. So we have a hard, we have a wall set up. And then when, when we see someone else trusting, we would call it, oh, well, you're just trusting blindly. And then we know that ultimately people are going to fail you. So it's no surprise to us when people fail you. And you're like, I put all my trust in you. Now you failed me and I don't know what to do. And so there's these two types of people. One that trust, no, no problem. They, I would say trust blindly. And there's other of us that are really reserved when we trust people. And the reason why we're reserved when we trust people is because we get hurt. Right? And, and so we end up getting hurt and then we don't want to trust anymore. And we have our guards up. And there's people who um, don't trust as well. Uh, they end up only having a certain amount of friends. And what I mean by that is they only have a certain amount of friends. Maybe they have like two or three outside of their, their, their spouse or their good friend, right? They really don't, come, when it comes to the fact they don't really trust people. And so, again, they put up these walls. And so you have someone who trusts all the time and has a lot of acquaintances, a lot of friends, and someone who puts up walls and doesn't trust because they feel someone's going to try to get something from them. So they only have a certain amount of friends. So there's just two type of things and, and, and people, and there's levels of trust that we all have. And I don't know what type of person you are. I don't know if you are a person, uh, a level of trust that you trust people no matter what, or if you are like me and you ha- are very cautious and reserved when you trust somebody. But the issue is this, is that all of us, when it comes to, uh, to us and how we live life, we all have levels of trust. Every single one of us does. And when you begin to look at this idea of trust, it's, it's this word that we kind of tend to use differently, and, and we use it in a different type of manner. And so um, we, we say it like this. You know, when it comes to someone wanting recommendations, 
So if you came to me and you wanted a recommendation of somebody who, who does job or does something, uh, you know, I would give you my recommendation and I would say, well, they're very good. They're fair priced. Yes, they did a good job for me. And you might say this. You might say, hey, um, do you trust them? And I would say, well, yeah, I trust them. But really, you know, I, I trust them that they did a good job with me. But what I'm really saying is what? I hope they do a good job just like they did for me, right? It's not really trust. It's like I'm hoping they do a good job. And so we have all this, this idea of trust. And some of us even put trust in the things that we feel secure. And what I mean by that is, is we put um, all of our trust in things that make us secure financially, uh, secure emotionally, secure spiritually. We, we do all that stuff. And so, again, you think of people tend to think, that if I have a certain amount of money when I retire, then I'm secure. People look at their jobs and say, my job is secure, right? And so we begin to put all our trust and all our hope in this, this things that make us secure. I mean, think about this. Many of us, when we go home, what do we do? We, we push the button and we push on the alarm because we want to feel safe and secure, right? And some of us even do this. We don't even trust ourselves to get up in the morning, so we use an alarm clock, right? And some of you really don't trust yourself to get up in the morning, so you set about five alarm clocks, right? You know what I'm saying? So you have this idea of this whole trust idea, and it's different levels. Now think about this, though. Every day you trust somebody. Every one of us trusts somebody. Well, what do I mean by that? You trust the person behind you, in the vehicle behind you, to what? Stop and not hit you. You trust sometimes in Odessa, that people will stop at a red light, right? Because some of us will wait like five, 10 seconds, and right? So, so we, you do trust. Now think about this. If you've ever been on an airplane, you what? You put your hands in the lives of that, that pilot. You are trusting the pilot to not only get you there safely, but what? To get you there on time. So every day there's this idea of trust, and there are levels of trust, whether blind trust or kind of reserved when we trust, but there's these levels of trust. But the, the thing is, about this is that trust, okay? Now, I'm going to read you the definition of trust because in all those circumstances, we use trust as a different word. So let me, let me explain this to you, okay? So it says this, trust is a firm belief in the real, uh, reliability, truth, ability, and the strength of someone or something. Okay, so you have a firm belief in the truth, ability, strength of someone or something. But let's just let's think about this. But having a firm belief in any of those things doesn't mean it's always going to work out. Right? Because at some point, those things will fail you. At some point, they will fail you, right? At some point, someone's going to run a red light. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get an accident. I'm just saying they'll run a red light. There's, there's times where maybe your retirement will go down because of what's happened economically. There are some times where someone will break a promise and not hold to their word. And they will, they will break your trust. So at some point, everyone or anything will fail you. Now, if you call yourself a Christian, the truth is that we know that if we place our trust in any areas but the Lord, that it's going to fail. Right? So we place, if you're a Christian, if you are a Christ follower, you begin to trust Jesus straight from the beginning. Okay? And so he is faithful. He keeps his promises. And he never fails. And we must place our trust in him. And as we place our trust in him, here's what happens. We, we, uh, we've talked about this idea that God wants to make us holy and he wants to make us set apart. 
that God has a plan and a purpose for your life, believe it or not. You're not here just taking up space. I'm not here taking up space. That's not our goal. And so what God wants to do is God wants to move in our lives. He wants to shape us and mold us so that we are set apart and holy for his plan and his purposes. Now you're probably thinking, well, how does trust have anything to do with this? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But let me just explain to you where we've gotten, how we've gotten from this point to today. So, uh, I mean, again, if you're not with us, we talked about that, that Jesus had an encounter with Pharisees. And what did he say? In order to be holy... You can't be what? A hypocrite. Because the Pharisees were what? They were so concerned with the outside that they neglected the inside and they neglected their characteristics. They neglected what was happening and what was going on. Because Jesus said, well, you're so worried about whitewashing the outside of the tomb that you forget that there's flesh rotting inside. And so Jesus says, if you want to be holy, if, if we want to be holy, if the Pharisees wanted to be holy, if they want to act holy and righteous and, and, and all of this that, that they had, that, that the Lord wanted them to be, they had to not be hypocrites in their actions. And then last week what we said was this, and it was, it was kind of interesting in the fact of this, is that a, a woman was kind of the topic of Jesus. Right, and, and Jesus made kind of this whole story and this idea from this woman, and he was observing her in the outer courts, and then she went in the women's courts, and she's, she's viewing him, and she's seeing him, and um, she sees her, and she sees the lady and says, okay, oh my gosh, the lady has dropped two copper coins in. And to you and I, copper coins aren't really a big deal, but here's the thing with the lady is she drops them in, and she gives all that she has. And what she did was she was what? Authentic in her motives. And we said motives drive our direction. And maybe you went out here last week and you really checked on your motives. You really checked kind of what you were doing because your motives drive your actions. And we said that that lady believed in Jesus. And she said, oh my gosh, you are my provider, so I'm going to drop my coins in. And so that she was authentic. And we said, if you want to move from hol- to holiness, what it is, is first of all, you can't be a hypocrite in our actions because that's most Christians are perceived that way. Then we've got to be authentic in what we do. So you can't be a hypocrite and, and not be concerned about the outside, but the inside. Be authentic. And then now we're coming to trust. So there's this whole idea that how God has taken you through a process. And today we're going to talk about this, this idea of trust and exactly how God wants us to trust. So when it comes to righteousness and trust, we'll talk about this, that we need to trust in the builder. And as we look at the trust in the builder, we're going to look at two, two um, scriptures. One is from the Old Testament and one is from the New Testament. We're going to first start in, in Psalms chapter 118. And I'm going to start in verse 19 and end. Psalm 118, and then I'm going to go to the second one. It's in 1 Peter 2. But let me kind of tell you about this psalm because sometimes people don't really understand the psalm. They don't fully understand it and get this. And so the psalms is this. In Psalm 118, there's kind of these 10 stanzas or these 10 parts to this whole psalm. And the psalmist writes this, and as he writes this, he is going to start off with praise that God's love endures forever. So he starts off praising God, and then he begins to go down the list, and he talks about anguish, and he talks about one who is enslaved. So it's kind of like I praise God, but then all of a sudden I'm in anguish because I'm enslaved, and I'm enslaved by a hostile nation. And then he's following, he follows it to down to the bottom, and he says there's victories in God. 
So he kind of he kind of goes through this whole thing in these ten stanzas. This psalmist begins to write, and when you begin to really dive into this, you see there's this correlation between how the Israelites are leaving um, slavery and they're leaving uh, Egypt and going to Mount Zion. So it's kind of this whole thing, and it kind of correlates in this Psalm 118. So now we come to verse 19. And here's what it says in verse 19 of uh, chapter 118 of Psalms. It says, Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you you answered me. You have become my salvation. Now there's a call for opening the temple gates and the righteous to enter. He says, I will open the gates of the righteous. And he's a grateful rejection, or excuse me, he's grateful recognition because he's been rejected. So since he's been rejected, there's this recognition, okay, I'm going to go to the Lord, I'm going to go to the gates, and I'm going to open the gates, and it's, I'm going to enter, and I'm going to sing praises to God. So again, he talks about the, the, the praises, and he's going to praise for what? It says his salvation, that I might become my salvation. So he's praising God for his deliverance. right? So he begins to say, I'm going to praise, and the reason why I'm praising is because God has delivered me. And so now the, he, the scripture speaks, and it speaks of God's strong right hand. And anytime when you look at the scripture, it, it refers to the right hand as being strengthened. And, and even when you look at um, Benjamin, okay, it, it, Benjamin means son of my right hand. And there's always a strength in this right hand. And so when he comes to God in, in the strength of his right hand, he, he says this, that the references that I'm going to praise, I'm anticipating and joining others with this great celebration of God and who he is and how he has delivered us. Now, the interesting thing is, is this psalm is read on Passover. And so anytime they have Passover, it, it is, it's sung by the Jews when the time now is Passover. And the Passover again is when the angel of death crossed over to the Israelites. They put the door on and they were safe. They put the blood on the door, like a cross, and the door, on the top and on the sides. And the angel of death passed over and he saved their firstborn son. So now they sing this at the Passover. But this was also when Jesus was entering Jerusalem in his final days. This was sung. Okay, so he's going to the cross, and this, actually, Psalm 118, is sung during that time. And the question is this. Did the people of God, did the masses, really know what Jesus came to do? Now, I believe there's some people that actually knew that Jesus was going to come, that he was the Messiah. They believed that he was the Messiah, and the masses, and what was going to transpire was his that he was the Savior of the world. Now, they might not have known his death. They might have known his death. I'm not sure. But this scripture is, is very clear, and it's very clear that he has been sent to do one thing, and that's to save the people from his sins. And so, as you see this, you begin to, um, it unfolds in verse 22. So, in verse 22, it says this, The stone the builders rejected. Now, the stone is obviously Jesus. Right, So the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the psalmist explains that the Lord has taken the stone, Jesus. He has been rejected by the builders. He's been rejected by the Jews in the, in the religious sect. 
So he's been rejected, and now what does it say? He makes him, and he becomes the cornerstone. So the people should re- be rejoicing that he's going to be the capstone or the cornerstone of the nation. And the cornerstone is, is, is kind of the, the place that you build the whole building on. It brings structure and stability to this. And so he says you should rejoice over this. Now, it is easily, in those days, great empires were set up by kings and were torn down by kings. Okay? And the nation of Israel, a lot of times, was overlooked as being insignificant. But God had a plan for Israel. And what was his plan? To show, remember, they were set apart to show the rest of the world who the one true God is. So again, he's setting them apart from from the very beginning. And so it's it's his rule. So the Lord takes the stone. He makes him the capstone. Now here's the interesting thing. This Psalm 118, Jesus would use when he talks about a parable. So Jesus in Matthew 21, so he goes and reverts back and, and uses Psalm 118 to make his point in the parable. And in, in Matthew chapter 21, he, he begins out with this parable and he says, well, there's an owner. There's this farmer who owns some land and, and there's some tenants who are, who are going and, and doing um, work and making a profit and harvesting on his land. So these tenants are harvesting on his land and each time there came a harvest that he would send out somebody to get the profits. So when they harvest grapes, he would send out the is somebody from him who is rep- representing him to get the profits from the tenants. So this time what he does is he sends out, he sends out some servants. Then the owner of the, the farm sends out his servants to go get money from the tenants. It is harvest time. He's about to get some profit. And the tenants say no. And Jesus keep, t- continues to tell the story, and it says that the tenants who are the farming the land, what they do is they kill the servants. Well, this upsets the owner of the farm. He doesn't know what to do, so he's thinking, okay, well, I've got to send somebody else. I've got to squash this. I've got to get my profits. And he thinks to himself, surely I can send my son. If I send my son, they will definitely not harm my son. So I'll just send my son. So again, in the parable, the farmer sends the son, and what happens to the son? Well, they beat him, torture him, and then kill him. And they, they think if we kill the son, then we can gain the land. Well, Jesus stops right there with the parable and he asks and he turns to the chief priests and he turns to the leaders in the religious sect and he says, now, if you're the farmer, what do you think the farmer is going to do? And they said, well, it's going to come to a terrible, terrible end. And Jesus says, yes, a wretched end indeed. And then he quotes the scripture and he quotes and says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so Jesus uses this to tell a chief priest, and it's really very clear what the whole parable is about. And what Jesus is saying is, you have rejected me. You have rejected me as the cornerstone. You've rejected me as the stone, as the one that the church is supposed to be built on. See, God is in the parable, God is the, the farmer, and he sent the servants, and the servants were the prophets, and they rejected the prophets. And then, of course, Jesus says, or God says, that I'm going to send my son, the farmer sends his son. He's going to send, God sends Jesus. And what's going to happen to Jesus? He's going to die. And he says, look, you have rejected me. You have rejected me, but God has made this marvelous. He's taken me from the stone to be the cornerstone and the foundation of what he's going to build on. 
and from there, the, 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 the parable moves on. And so he talks about that now it is going to be built on me. So chief priest, you've rejected me, but I'm going to build, the church is going to be built on me. And everyone who comes involved into the church is going to be unified and built on this capstone. And he says now it's good. the church is going to be um, Jews and Gentiles. So anyone who's Jewish and anyone who's Gentile is a believer will now have a firm foundation on me. And again, remember Jesus says, on this I will build my church and what? The gates of hell will not prevail. So he begins to, to foreshadow what is about to, to happen and take place. So again, as members of the church, what Jesus would say to you and to I is what? We need to be holy, right? And the first step is to be built on Jesus, so you move from that. Now, Peter says, so you have this whole Psalms idea. Now, Peter would echo this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, what Peter begins to say to his readers is he says this, that now I exhort you. I'm exhorting you to be holy. I urge you to be holy. And no longer are you a baby. No longer are you kind of not spiritually immature. But now Paul or Peter would say that you are spiritually mature and it's time to grow. And as we grow, he would say this, that together you're going to offer a spiritual sacrifices and become a royal priesthood. And I'll kind of explain that here. But again, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4 he expounds on this whole idea. He says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by him, excuse me, by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. So he says, as you come to him. Now, some would take this and say, well, as I come to, to, to Jesus, as I come to God in the means of salvation. That's not what Peter's talking about here. He is not saying that when you first put your faith in Jesus and you have put all of your trust in him, that this is what he's talking about. He is not talking about coming to salvation at this point. Okay, What he's talking about is he's talking about when he uses the Greek, and when you look at the, vo the voice and kind of the, the verb tense and what it's in, he's saying it's a personal, habitual approach. So he says, as you come to the living stone. Now what he means is, as you come, not when you put your faith in him, but as you come in a personal, habitual approach to Jesus. Okay, that's what he's saying at, the, at this moment. And it says, there is an intimate, he's saying there's an intimate association and an intimate communion with your heavenly Father. So it's not, not when you come to him, when you first get saved, it's after you get saved and you continually have an intimate fellowship with Jesus. So he says, as you approach the, the living God, the living stone, this is what you do. And he says that it won't, it, it, you come to him daily, and there again, it is the first step. It's the first step in holiness. It's the first step in righteous living. Not only are you built on Jesus, but you come to him each and every day as a habitual approach to get intimacy and fellowship with him. Because if you're going to be shaped by Jesus, you have to what? Spend time with Jesus. It's not going to just like magically happen. Right? So Peter says that. You're growing up. Now you're beginning to mature in the faith. And I want you to become more and more like Jesus. And when he says this, he's, and when, the interesting thing is, he says that you come to the living stone. Now, this is interesting because you're thinking a living stone, and it's really unique. Because in, if you look before 
in his whole um, kind of uh, letter, in the beginning, he says this, he refers to Jesus as the living hope. And then he would say, and go a little bit further in his letter, and say that Jesus is the living word. So not only is he the living hope, he's the living word, and now he says he's the living stone. And you're thinking, well, that's kind of an oxymoron. How's a stone living? Right? I mean, if you're a reader, you're thinking, okay, what, what is he talking about here? It's kind of just different. But he says this, he's living in the fact that Jesus gives life to people. That when, you're, when, you're, when Jesus gives life, you are built on the stone, the cornerstone, on a firm foundation. And as he says this, he's saying when people enter into a personal relationship with God, if you call yourself a Christ follower and you have entered into a personal relationship with God, your life has been transformed. My life has been transformed. That I come to him habitually and be transformed. And again, what happens is the old is gone and the new has come. And see, we were dead. If you, if, again, if you know Jesus, you were dead to, to all this stuff and you were dead to the things of God and the ways of God. And all of a sudden, Jesus came in your life and he spiritually awoke you. And your spirit was awoke. It was awake, excuse me. It was awake to the Lord. It was awakened to what, who he is, what he came to do. And you were all, all of a sudden, spiritually, you were awake. And you said, oh my gosh, your life has been transformed. So again, that's the living stone. He wakens people spiritually. He's waking you and me spiritually. And then he continues and he says this. Those that are in a personal relationship with Jesus, he says he refers to us as living stones. So he would say, you come to the living stone. Now you who are followers of Jesus are called what? Living stones. Okay? And here's what he says in verse uh, 5 of chapter 2. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you are living stones. And what does he say? You are a living stone. You're being built on a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer what? Spiritual sacrifices. Now, I'll explain all of this in, in just a second. But the first thing you have to understand is that believers are identified with Christ, right? So if you're identified with Christ, the living stone, that makes you what? A living stone. Okay? Because you're identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as you become more and more like him, Jesus begins to mold you and shape you into the likeness of Jesus, into the characteristics of Jesus, more patient, more kind, more loving, uncon uh, unconditional love. He transforms you. He takes you from where you are to where you need to be. And he takes out the old and the gunk and the muck and the mire out of your life, and he deposits his characteristics in you as a living stone. And you begin to, to see this, and he says, the church is built on Jesus, and the church is made up of believers. He would say this, that what? You're to be a holy priesthood, right? And if you go and look in the Old Testament, here's the interesting thing about priests. Priests are set apart. See, priests are, are, are set apart for one task and one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to what? To mediate on the behalf of the people. 
that they would be the mediator. They would come, and if you sinned each year, you would come and you'd buy an unspotted lamb, a bull or a dove or whatever your sacrifice required, and you'd go to the priest, and the priest was the only one who was allowed to mediate for you on, on the behalf of, of to God. So the priest is set apart. Now, when he, he talks about this, that you're a royal priesthood, here's the thing, that you are set apart, and the thing about priests is the priest didn't need a mediator. You and I no longer need a mediator. Right? You're a royal priesthood. You are set apart, but you don't need a mediator. Because who's the mediator for you and I? Jesus. Jesus. We are seen as holy and acceptable and pleased to God because he looks through the lens of not of our sin and not of our muck and mire. You know who he sees you through? He sees you through Jesus. So imagine the way God looks at you is he has this kind of this, this telescope or microscope, whatever you want to call it, this lens. He puts on these glasses and he sees you through the lens of Jesus. Holy, perfect, and acceptable. That's how he sees you. And, and, and Jesus is the one that mediates between you and, and I to God for our sins. And so that's how we are, we are seen as holy. That's how God sees us holy. That's how he sets us apart because of the lens he looks through. And then so again... He goes to verse 6, and here's what he says. He says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. See, Peter uses the Old Testament to support the stone. He uses, a, another, again, another verse out of Isaiah to say he's a choice gemstone. He's a choice cornerstone. And he uses this, again, because the cornerstone is what the whole building is built on. See, back then when they built buildings, the, the cornerstone was such an integral part of their building because that's where the structure and the stability came from. And he says Jesus has the structure and the stability and the firm foundation of the, of the church. That's who it begins with. And he says, again, he says, you will never be put to shame. So he says, you will never be put to shame. And when you look at the scripture and you look at the Greek word, he says, I am giving and pointing to the future. And the future says this, that you, if you are, are, are built and trust on that cornerstone and he is making you righteous and holy, you will never be put to shame. Never, now or in the future. You'll never be put to shame. And he says that, to, encourages his reader, that this is a, a, a scriptural promise, and there is ultimate victory in who? In Jesus. There is ultimate victory in Jesus. When you trust, you will no longer be put to shame. And all of this, you see that Jesus is the capstone. He's the cornerstone. That he is the stone, that you're the living stone. And so what do we do? So if in order for us to be holy, what is, what is Peter asking us? What is Jesus asking us to do? It's simply this. That true holiness requires trust in the builder. That you are going to trust Jesus to do what he needs to do in and through your life. That the, your, your faith and your foundation and your life, everything, your will, your, your choices, your, your everything that you have, any, everything inside of you is built on this cornerstone as a living stone. That true holiness is saying, I trust Jesus, have your way in me. And see, for a lot of us, when it comes to trust, it's not always easy. 
See, because when we first become Christians, if you're a Christian and you first become a Christian and you, you come to faith, we say that you're all in. Right? You're all in. And so a lot of us have placed our trust in Jesus and, and our hope in Jesus and, and, and like we know our, our lives transformed. We show up to work, or work. we show up to, to church all the time. We show up anytime. We, there's like, we just can't get enough of Jesus. And then something happens and transpires like anything over a period of time. And it's kind of what we, I would call complacency or we become stagnant. And see, we only trust God when we really need him. Like we've placed our trust in him and we're good, but then over a period of time our faith becomes stagnant and it just it's not going anywhere. And so true holiness is developed when you understand this, that God has called his followers to be built on Jesus, not once and stopped, but continually through our lifetime. Right? Philippians says this, he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it until the end. Right? So Jesus is not, he's all about while we're on earth, he's, he's trying to shape us and mold us into what he wants us to be. It's not a one-time thing. And so, again, if you're, if you're kind of that, we, we trust in God in the beginning, and then over a period of time when we're walking with him, when do we trust him the most? When life isn't going as planned. Right? We trust him to intervene, we trust him to do something on our behalf. We trust him to come and, hey, we want you to do something. We want you to do it now. Or what we do is we become so impatient and we can't trust him that we pull back the reins and we want to be in control. But sometimes, here's what you have to understand. There's sometimes in the moments that when you're going through those trials, when you're going through that trouble, he's trying to teach you something. See, he's shaping you. He's molding. Maybe he's teaching you patience. Maybe he's teaching you something else. I don't know what it is, but God is teaching you something in those moments. And so, again, we, we trust in the tough times, but in the good times, it's really like, I don't know about you, but when life is really good, we don't need anything, do we? Right? When life is really good, it's like, yeah, yeah, I got this. Life is good. I mean, I, don't, I trust you, Jesus, but I'm not fully in like I was when I first became a Christian. And, and that's when we become stagnant and we become complacent in our walk. Right? We, we, we just become at that place. And it's even in those, those times where the times that are good that God wants to shape you and he wants to mold you. He wants to do something great in your life and through your life. See, we are called to be living stones that are holy Continually built on Jesus. And, and when you're holy, Jesus wants to set you apart for his plans, his purposes, his desire, his will, and to expand the kingdom of God. And see, we're not here just taking up space. God has not called you just to sit and take up space. God has called you to expand the kingdom of God, expand his will and his, in his, in his ways in this world. That's what he's called the church to do. And if you call yourself a believer, that is what, don't take up space. Don't live a mediocre life. Live, he says what? Live life to the fullest. I've come to give life and life to the fullest, not to have a mediocre life. I didn't die so you could have a mediocre life. I died to give you the fullest, best life ever. And, and, and as, as, as living stones, we need to understand that and begin to say, it is not our will it's not us, Lord. It's your will. 
Have your way in me. Do something great in me because, Lord, I don't want to take up space anymore. I don't want to live a mediocre life. I don't want to be a mediocre Christian. I want to be all that you have for me. So, God, would you just begin to work in my life? Would you just begin to to shape me and mold me into what you want me to be? Not to what I want, but what you want for me. And see, as living stones, there's a couple of things that we need to do. And, and living stones, we need to be in fellowship with God. Now, again, I understand this. this. I might seem like a broken record. This might seem redundant. But fellowship with God, and I speak about this all the time, there's nothing more important in your life than spending time with the Lord each and every day. There is nothing. And, and you're like, well, I've heard this all the time. Well, I know, because it is so fundamental to your faith. It's so fundamental to you as a believer. It's so fundamental to you to grow in Jesus. See, and the thing is, is sometimes you've got to come back to the fundamentals. And I remember when I was coaching softball, or I was coaching basketball, or I was coaching baseball, whatever it was, guess what it was? I always came back to the fundamentals. I didn't care if they were 16 or 8. First practice and continually practice for the first half hour was fundamental things. Why? Because if you don't have the fundamentals of a game, you can't ex- expand and get greater and better and grow in that sport. You know who I love? And, and some people get annoyed because I always talk about these two, but I like, when it comes to coaches, I like, like John Wooden and I like Vince Lombardi. And you say, well, why? Well, you know Why? Because these men would bring it back to the fundamentals every single year. You're talking about Vince Lombardi who won tro- uh, Super Bowl championships. And he would, he would have grown men, professional athletes. And you know what he started out with the first day of practice? Fundamentals. Hey, men, this is a football. This is what we do with a football. I mean, he brought it so basic and people laughed at him, but the guy won championships. You look at John Wooden who won 10 championships for UCLA basketball out of 12 years and people go, man, how did he do it? Because of his fundamental, of his pyramid of success and how he went over the fundamentals each and every year. He has college boys. You know what he told the college boys? Hey, gentlemen, today, you know what we're going to do the first day of practice in the first five minutes? I'm going to teach you how to tie your shoes properly. I'm a... I'm a 18, 20-year-old adult. What do you mean after? Because if you don't learn how to tie your high tops properly, you're going to have ankle injuries, and I need you for the rest of the season. And the guy does that, and he wins what? 10 out of 12 championships. It's fundamentally. See, and look, you can say it's redundant, and you can say the fundamentals are redundant, but look, God wants you to have that fundamental sound relationship with him so you can grow. It's not redundant. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where your walk in faith is. It comes back to spiritually praying with him every day, communing with him every day. It's reading his word so the Lord can speak to you and shape you. you. You don't know what God has for your life if you're not in relationship with him. See, and, and this is what you're missing out I think you're personally missing out on the great things that God wants to do in your life. I believe you're missing out on the, on the things of what he wants to shape and what he wants to do in and through you if you're neglecting time with him. And I'm not saying we all get this perfect. I'm not. There's sometimes where we struggle. There's sometimes where I struggle. But again, we've got to come back to the fundamentals. If we are going to be living stones, then we need to have fellowship with our God. Otherwise, you're just a stone. 
You're not changing. You're not, you're not, you're not doing anything in this world. And, and again, God wants to do great things in and through your life, so you've got to connect with him and connect with him daily. And, and here's what I understand, and this is some of you, and I, I know this to be true. The pushback is this. It's excuses. And there's excuses that say, I'm too busy or I'm too tired. And let's be honest. Right off the bat, if we don't spend time with God, we don't see the effects right away. So we push it off because it's not urgent, but it is urgent to your spiritual growth and well-being. It is urgent. And we got to stop neglecting it. Look, if I continue to neglect, if I continue to, to say this and push off, look it, neglect does not get you from where you are to where God wants you to be. Neglect doesn't get you to growing spiritually. Doesn't. Excuses don't get you there either. Right? Any excuses is not going to get you, even in life, going to get you to the, your goal physically. You have excuses. Your, your goal of, of what God has for your life, he, you're not going to get where he wants you to be. You're going to live this mediocre life. But that's not what God has for you. He has so much more as a living stone. Fellowship with him. And it's only achieved when we ditch the excuses. We say, okay, Lord, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here to hear from you. I'm here to receive from you. I'm here to glean from you. What do you want? Have your way in me. And the second thing is this as living stones, you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You're like, what a living sacrifice. In Romans, it says this, right? Romans 12, 1, that you offer yourself as a living, therefore, right, be renewing of your mind, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, and acceptable to God. That is your true and proper worship. What does it mean as a living sacrifice? See, when you offer yourself to God, you're offering yourself as an instrument of righteousness. You're offering yourself as a right standing and a right standing before the Lord. Lord, I'm going to choose to do what is right. I'm going to choose to walk in what is right. I'm offering myself up to you. And what that has for you and I and what that means is that we begin to surrender. What's a sacrifice? Giving something up. Right? You're sacrificing something so you can have something else. You're, you're just saying, okay, Lord, I sacrifice. I am giving you my will. I'm giving you my choices. I'm giving you everything I have. It is yours. Why? Because your life is not your own. If you think your life is your own, you're mistaken. If you are a follower of Jesus, here's what he says. You were bought with a price. Your life is not your own. And so we are to honor the Lord with our lives. And that means we honor ourselves and say we are sacrificed, holy, pleasing, and acceptable to you. See, because you know what the opposite of righteousness is? It's wickedness. So you have a choice and I have a choice as, as living stones. We can either offer ourselves up as living right standing before God and, and following the ways and the righteousness of, of our God. Or we can in turn make the choice because God didn't make robots and we can be an instrument of wickedness. I don't know anyone who willingly says, I want to be an instrument of wickedness. I want to be opposite of what God wants. But if we do what opposite of what God wants, then you're just saying, man, your death and your resurrection, that just... It just has no meaning in my life. See, because you were bought with a price, and you think you own your life. And so again, 
that's that's the thing. And, and again, we're we're not. If you think and you begin to walk in this way, guess what? You're not connected with the living stone. You're just a stone, not making any difference in the world. And God is surely not using you to all that you can become and what he wants to do in your life. See, when you're embracing, when you're pra- embracing the place in the kingdom of God, and you embrace that you're a priest, that you're set apart, that God is working on you, that he's making a holy, holy um, um, priesthood, and he's beginning to work in and through your life, that's when change happens. That's when things happen, and, and that's when you become, as a living stone, you begin to go through the process of becoming holy. You go through the process of what God has for you. When you begin to realize that. See, Jesus invites you, and he invites me, to depend on him and to follow him. It's not a one-time event over our life. We depend on him and we follow him. And he begins to shape and mold us from the inside out. And we begin to be transformed. We transform, our lives are transformed and the rest of the world is transformed because God begins to use us to bring about his plans and his purposes for our lives. Finally, see, the best thing is, is this, that you have fellowship with him and that you trust him and that your life is built on him. And that way, again, you will, you will you'll begin to work, you'll begin to be effective. You'll be effective for the kingdom of God. See, it isn't about trusting ourselves and it isn't about trusting uh, in, in our own plans and purposes and it's not about control, Right? It is about living the way God wants us to live. It's about going through this process of being holy. Are we there yet? No. I'm not even there yet. I'm still in the process, and the process is a big word called sanctification. We're all in that process till we finally die. But in the meantime, we can trust the builder to do what only he can do. Transform hearts, transform minds, and ultimately what? Transform lives. And that's what he wants to do in your life and in mine. So I, I, again, might be a little touchy for some of us. I might, I don't know where it kind of lands for you, but what I want for you is, is I want you, if you just said, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know, if you've just been here, you've been kind of mediocre in your walk. God wants to elevate it. He wants to do something great to, today and elevate your life. And today it's just a sweet surrender. So as I pray, I mean, you just lift up your hands and say, okay, Lord, I surrender my ways. I surrender my life. I surrender my will. I surrender everything. And as the living stone, would you just have your way in me? Because we don't want to be mediocre. We want to be a a church that is effective. Because God is what our hope, and he's definitely going to bring wholeness to our lives. Thanks for listening. And if you would like more information on our church or you'd like to visit us in person, you can go to basinchurch.org. And as always, we hope this content helps you on your faith journey.